Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with Hondo Gertz. And I know I'm particularly excited to have Congressman Joe Courtney with us today because um, my home state is Connecticut. And uh, Congressman Courtney has spent a lot of time focusing on armed services. I know you have naval base in your district and have championed a lot of issues around the defense industrial base. So we're excited to get into that today. So thanks so much for joining us. Great. Well, go Huskies. Uh, Thank you, uh, Lauren. And um, really appreciate the opportunity to be with you and my good friend Jim Gertz, who uh, really did great service uh, for the country during my time with him uh, at, uh, at the Department of the Navy. And, um, uh, and you know, this is a topic that is near and dear. It's not just because of my service on the Armed Services Committee, but I also sit on the uh, Education and Labor Committee, and I'm on the subcommittee for Higher Education and Workforce Development, which, um, you know, coming from a state like Connecticut, which you know well, um, as Governor Bill O'Neill, who was governor uh, a number of decades ago, but he used to say, you know, we're never going to, you know, mine coal, drill for oil, grow large commodity crops. I mean, we will succeed as a state uh, by investing in people. And, And I you know, still those words ring in my ears. And, and I do think right now we're at a moment where, frankly, the, not just Connecticut, but the whole country, you know, should, has really got to start paying attention to what's happening in the labor market um, and what this means for our defense industrial base, which um, is a really serious um, issue. It's not uh, unfixable. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully we'll get into that today. Well, Congressman, it's uh, for so many years I was on the uh, other side of the mic where you were grilling me on the uh, uh, in all, in our number of hearings. So it's uh, it's fun to be on this side of the mic, and it's really good to see you again. You know, we're we're going to deep dive into some of the industrial base issues. I know you and I worked uh, so hard on over the years, but you know, for many folks. Uh, I think as you're kind of growing up, they, they sometimes think uh, uh, us senior folks had this grand vision and we had this perfect path planned and, you know, we knew exactly what we wanted to do and just had to fight there to get it. And then for most of us, it's been kind of meandering. What's your kind of background and what what happened early on that allowed you or, or drove you to kind of serve the country in this important role on Capitol Hill? And again, you were uh, actually an outstanding witness before our subcommittee. Um, you know, I did not grow up in a political family at all. Um, and my dad was a, a lifelong Republican, actually. Uh, he served in the FBI. He was a, an agent during um, G- G-Man during World War II, tracking Nazi fifth columnists and, and, and all across the country. And uh, But he was not political at all. In fact, kind of looked down on politicians a little bit. So, um, but um, I had an experience of uh, actually being an intern, uh, which uh, happened in my first year in law school. Uh, my dad, you know, was a lawyer and I sort of was, you know, he was a big influence in my life. I was sort of following uh, a lot his sort of uh 
you know, inspiration. And uh, but anyway, you know, working at the state capitol as an intern and being part of the legislative process with a very effective member back then, um, you know, the light bulb sort of went off uh, over my head. And it, what's interesting is if you talk to other members of Congress, the, the experience of internships really uh, has been life changing for a lot of people. Um, Nancy Pelosi was an intern. Steny Hoyer was an intern. And um, and I tell that story when I'm talking to high school kids, you know, about, you know, what what you know, they ought to be keeping their eye on as they go to sort of next levels in their, in their lives. So anyway, um, uh, based on that ran for state legislature, um, won my first campaign, uh, did four terms, uh, in the general assembly chaired the public health and human services committee, uh, loved every minute of it. Um, my family was growing. It's a part-time position and, you know, basically something had to give. So step back from, um, public service for 12 years, actually. Uh, the seat that I now occupy had been uh, Chris Dodd's uh, congressional seat before he went to the Senate, and Sam Gadenson, the guy who I interned for. Uh, he lost the seat in, in 2000. Uh, so I stepped up and ran in 2002, came up short, lost the race, um, which is not always the worst thing in the world. And, and I you know, tell this again to young people that, you know, it isn't a straight line in terms of just how you find yourself in not just politics, but, you know, life in general. Um, and then took a second stab at it in 2006, learned a few lessons from that first campaign and squeaked by by a vote, whopping vote margin of 83 votes out of 241,000 casts. So my first nickname in Congress was Landslide Joe. And uh, um, and but, you know, honestly, I don't recommend recounts for anybody, which we had to go through. But um, sometimes when in a close margin is is a good sort of lesson that, you know, um, these positions are not um, yours, you know, they, they and, and they're very fragile and you really have to pay attention to the people who kind of send you there. So um, uh, anyway, the, the margins have been a little better since then than 83 votes. And uh, and, you know, uh, again, I, I think. Um, you know, the experience of, of um, you know, being a legislator where you're really trying to focus on results, um, you know, I, I find just very satisfying because you're, you know, part of it, you have to put your analysis as a lawyer and as a, you know, public official in terms of crafting legislation. But you also have to obviously negotiate with a lot of people that maybe aren't quite as interested in your issue as you are. And so, um, you know, it's a. Uh, it's a process that I find extremely stimulating and you learn something almost on it and every day. And, and I, you know, as much as people are turned off by politics, you know, I really try to convey that message, particularly when I'm talking to young people that, you know, this is actually, um, you know, just incredibly satisfying and gratifying. And also it can be fun and it's, um, and you, you really have to, you know, kind of get past some of the sort of negativity that, that surrounds politics and, and um, serving in public office. Well, sir, a topic we focus on on our show is collaboration between the high tech sector and the defense community and the changing nature of the defense industrial base. I was wondering if you could give our listeners your take on what's going on. You see it at the local level, um, but more broadly speaking, the defense industrial base. I know you recently wrote an op-ed that we were excited to see. And if you could maybe dive into that a little bit. Sure. So, uh, um, again, for your listeners, maybe aren't familiar with the landscape in Connecticut. Again, we're a very you know dense defense presence in, in our state with uh, Pratt and Whitney Aircraft, which is you know again one of the you know iconic companies that have built 
engines for the Air Force and the Army Air Force back before there was an Air Force. Um, Sikorsky aircraft, which, uh, again, is, um, you know, the Black Hawk helicopter, the presidential Marine One, heavy lift, etc. And then uh, we also are the home of General Dynamics Electric Boat. So you combine that whole sort of, you know, those three big companies, um, you know, those are tens of thousands of jobs in, in our state. And um, all of the small shops that sort of feed into them, uh, again, it's just you can, you know, increase that number by a multiple, a large multiple. Again, you know, what's driven, I think, um, the success in Connecticut is uh, obviously innovation. And that's why, again, investing in people, making sure that, um, you know, it's an environment that really, um, you know, enables, uh, you know, innovation. And again, Igor Sikorsky, again, who invented the helicopter and, um, you know, uh, electric boat has been building submarines that were, you know, going back really 120 years, uh, again, was another innovator. Uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, I think one of the key elements in terms of uh, a successful industrial base. But another piece of it is uh, obviously having a workforce when you're talking thousands of people that you need, um, you know, to, to actually really execute in terms of uh, these large platforms that, um, you know, you can't really just walk off the street and, and start working there on day one. And, um you know, the piece that you mentioned earlier, um, I think, you know, for our country, you know, there's a few things that have been happening recently that I think really, I think really ha- forces us, or in my opinion, should force us to really pay attention to the fact that, um, you know, we, we have a, a, a skills gap right now um, that is really um, going to hinder um, the ability of our country to really meet it, what the moment in terms of what our defense needs are. So why that's happening is number one, um, you know, we, we had, uh, again, a very sizable workforce in our country right up to the end of the Cold War. The peace dividend, which, you know, resulted in, in a lot of downsizing of a lot of, um, you know, different defense programs across the board saw the, a reduction and, a, and sort of a, a lapse in hiring. Um, and now with sort of the uptick in terms of just the demand signal in terms of what's happening in the world because of external events, um, you know, we, we had a very fragile workforce pre-COVID of sort of aging baby boomers with uh, sort of Gen Z and some Gen X, uh, you know, that were finally starting to, you know, get ramped up in terms of hiring. Well, COVID hit and that really accelerated the retirement of baby boomers. So you can see this in um, companies like Electric Boat, where, you know, their workforce really not that long ago was majority baby boomers. And now it is a very small portion. And you've got, um, you know, whole just divisions and, and um, cohorts in the in the shipyard there that have worked there five years or less. Um, they're actually hanging in there. They're doing good work. Part of it is because there are some new innovative um, technologies in terms of, you know, handheld computer devices and, you know, um, virtual um, design, etc. So, there, so, you know, there, there has been, I think, some... Um, 
you know, silver lining to this in terms of a new population of people who are really adept at, you know, handling sort of electronic devices. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that we still have large shortfalls out there in terms of the number of people that we need to hit the production uh, goals. Um, and again, I see it very much on a local basis. As we're sitting here having this interview, there's 680 job openings um, in the shipyard just in Groton alone. Again, there's another shipyard up in Quonset Point, which actually has a larger um, number of unfilled positions that are there. And, um, you know, like I said, you can't just hold a job fair and somebody walks in and, you know, tell them you're you're hired. I mean, you've got to have some skill set to sort of really uh, take on this work. And and so, I mean, I can stop there if you want to follow up with more questions. But, you know, there are solutions to this, but we we really need to... um, focus on those solutions. Yeah, sure. Maybe if you can, in, in the op-ed, you brought up a couple of existing either authorities or laws, and um, something you and I used to talk a lot about was, you know, before asking for a new authority, maximize the use of the authorities you currently have. Can you remind us of some of those kind of on the books or easily reauthorized um, authorities you think would have really a, a profound impact on this, on this critical problem? Sure. So, you know, if you look at uh, um, you know, defense manufacturing, you know, the real workhorse programs that I think, um, you know, gives employers job ready applicants is number one in the education side, the career and technical um, high schools, tech schools is I think, we, you know, most people call them these days. <clears throat> You know, again, and there was a time where, you know, those were sort of viewed as, you know, people going for a shop and, you know, car repairs, which is there's nothing wrong with that because we need lots of good people to repair automobiles. Um, you know, uh, hairdressing, you know, that sort of thing. But now the, we're seeing the career and technical schools shifting into welding, electricians, sheet metal work, um, you know, the, the type of skills that... Um, you know, meet the the local economic market, labor market demand that's there. The problem with career and technical schools is not the, the quality of the work that they're doing, but just the capacity to, to graduate enough people to really, um, you know, meet the moment, as I said. Um, so Secretary Cardona from the U.S. Department of Education, he actually came down to the shipyard and visited. And, and uh, we went over to one of the tech schools there that, again, is just doing great work. And what what the Department of Education is now looking at doing is really extending these types of curriculum outside of career and technical schools into comprehensive high schools, you know, which are sort of the quote unquote regular high schools who really don't offer, you know, these types of curriculums for people. And the good news is, is that it's actually been a really well received sort of on a pilot basis um, for comprehensive high schools that are now um, giving kids this new sort of extra curriculum. And again, I, I was at a supply chain machine shop the other day that is, again, one of the um, suppliers into the submarine program. There was an 18-year-old young girl that was there who had just graduated from high school, comprehensive high school, who was, uh, you know, fabricating metal. I mean, the metal pieces weighed more than she did, <laughs> but she was operating that thing, you know, 
like a playing the piano. And, um, you know, I mean, they literally just hired her straight out of one of those programs that's there. And she loves it. You know, I mean, she was very excited to be doing this. You know, it's, it's interesting. We, um, we sometimes, you know, you think of shipyard workers and you think of, you know, big guys like me with big necks. And uh, and certainly there's a physical element to it. But I was uh, with Senator Kane and got asked, you know, is there a place for folks with disabilities or unique needs in the shipyard? And it got to me thinking, you know, as we enter in the robotics age and some of these uh, machinery, you know, these new machines, it's less about the brawn and more about the brains. And so I think, uh, as you say, there's going to be really an interesting shifting of the industrial base workforce. Uh, and the bad news is a lot of them are inexperienced. The good news is they're digital natives and, and might be able to bring something. Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together in hearings and whatnot. And, and I always appreciated your um, kind of focus on the mission in, in Congress and not getting too wound up and, you know, being able to separate national security issues from, domestic, you know, your um, constituent issues. Do you sense that? And you sense Congress getting... Um, um, more serious about national security in a bipartisan manner while everything else is getting kind of more and more or uh, partisan? Or do you do you see that uh, partisanship um, kind of leaking into national security discussions? So the good news is that if you look at <clears throat> since February 24th, 2022, the, the invasion of Ukraine, I mean, actually, there's been a pretty impressive uh, sequence uh, sequence of um, bipartisan response with the supplemental funding bills. There were three of them, very sizable. Um, the first one passed unanimously. Second one, there was a little bit of leakage. There was probably about 10 or less. The third one, there was 57 no votes, which is starting to get climb up to, you know, a much more noticeable situation that's there. And, um, you know, we're about to hopefully take up another supplemental as part of the omnibus soon, $37 billion. Um, there definitely is more voices that are raising questions about whether, you know, we should keep, quote unquote, throwing money at Ukraine, which is a really, you know, total distortion and misrepresentation of what, you know, what we're doing with that um, type of policy decision. Um, so, you know, hopefully, you know, we're going to see test that again. The um, defense uh, authorization bill this year passed 329 to 101. And if you break down again that vote, it was really a center left, center right coalition that was in the overwhelming majority. And there were people on both sides of the spectrum on the far, you know, ends of the spectrum that were on right and left that were the no votes there. So, you know, that's kind of the encouraging sort of um, perspective that, that um, you know, we, we still, I think, have a, you know, sweet spot in the center of gravity that, um, you know, is is now, you know, really responding to what's happening in Ukraine. The, the uh, defense bill that I mentioned uh, raised the top line from President Biden's original submission, you know, by $25 billion. And I think that's actually going to go up even a little higher when we finish up the final version of this. So, you know, I think if you went back two years ago with a new Democratic president, Democratic Senate, Democratic House, and said that you would see defense budgets getting passed, you know, by 
you know, with much larger increases in spending um, from what President Biden submitted, I think a lot of people would have rolled their eyes. So, I, you know, it does show, you know, the world gets a vote. And, and the place, despite all of its kind of negativity, you know, actually has, I think, you know, shown some impressive results. But, you know, you can't sort of take it for granted. You know, you really kind of have to keep working it. The other two programs, though, that I want to mention really quick, there was a National Apprenticeship Act and the uh, Workforce Investment uh, Opportunity Act. So the National Apprenticeship Act was passed in 1937, the Fitzgerald Act, actually by Mr. Fitzgerald was the congressman from my district. He was from Norwich, Connecticut, actually. And um, he actually worked as a 15-year-old in a foundry. He never got a college education. And he experienced what the old days of apprenticeships were like, which, you know, it was a very exploited type of system where employers paid people virtually nothing. And um, uh, and his law basically established national standards in terms of, you know, A, how apprenticeships, uh, how apprentices are actually treated. But number two, that their program that they're in is, is adhering to a standard, whether, again, you're a welder or, you know, a uh, uh, you know, uh, boilermaker. You know, you name it. That that you're 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 getting a certificate that you can take to a different employer or a different part of the country, and people are going to have confidence that you really know what you're doing. That's there. So the problem with it is that it's been woefully underfunded, and it's also been very limited in scope in terms of sort of um, you know how it's used. And we have a bill to reauthorize it for the first time in over 80 years that would actually. Um, extend the reach of the apprenticeship program to more underserved communities um, who've never really, when you think of apprenticeships, you don't really usually think of women and, you know, um, people of color. I mean, that's, that is happening to some degree right now, but this would actually turbocharge that. And, um, and it would extend it to other sectors like, you know, IT, healthcare, um, because it is a faster way to connect people to a job, you know, without sort of traditional sort of educational paths. The other is the Workforce Investment Act, which is a pre-apprenticeship program that's been around since the 1990s. Um, same thing. It's uh, actually had really impressive results, but it's just, you know, it's federally funded, locally um organized in terms of, you know, the, the curriculum for it. And um, uh, what this revised version would do is, again, just size it up and same thing, extend it to sort of other sectors and other underserved populations. We need to do that right now. There's 10 million job openings in the country. There's uh, And labor participation rates are going down. I mean, there, there's only one way you can solve that, in my opinion, which is to close the skills gap. And that's what these sort of three different sort of programs, I think, um, have shown you know, successful results as, as a way to address that issue. Those are fantastic programs. And I heard an interview this week I thought was interesting. The former CEO of Cisco talked about maybe how we might be moving from the great resignation, as some have called it, to the great recommitment. And we're at this interesting time from an economic perspective. Typically, the defense industrial base isn't hit very hard from a recession because the government is such a consistent customer. But right now they're dealing with inflation. And so if there is a recession with inflation, how are you thinking about how that might impact the workforce or the defense industrial base more broadly speaking? Well, uh, hopefully we're not going to have that, you know, but, it, you know, I mean, you 
it, it's not a far-fetched scenario to, to see that possibly happen. The um, I mean, the defense bill that we may pass in a few days actually is going to give the Department of Defense some flexibility to make a flight inflation adjustments, particularly for uh, wages, uh, because um, as you know, we're hearing from some of the large uh, manufacturers, um, they're now competing with McDonald's uh, and Amazon. You know, if we're talking entry level job offers, which, you know, twenty dollars an hour used to be considered a pretty sweet sort of, you know, first job. Um, but now you can get that actually in some of these other um, occupations, which, you know, are not as rewarding by any stretch and don't have the, you know, the, the advantages of, of advancement in terms of, you know, going into higher pay levels. But nonetheless, that's a real reality that's there. And, um, uh, you know, you're right about it being recession proof in terms of defense. I mean, if there was some you know, benefit of the labor market maybe kind of tightening up a little bit is that I think it may make defense manufacturing and defense jobs more attractive because it, it just would be more security. And something we focus on on our show, too, is some of the newer entrants who might be venture backed um, looking to go and can't spend as many cycles because they can't have maybe as high of a burn rate during a more difficult economic time. But something to keep in mind is your point that the government is a great customer to have because of that consistency once you get in. So uh, we're interested to see what happens in that sense. Sorry, I'd, I'd be remiss without uh, kind of getting your view kind of on the current state of sea power uh, with all of your hard work on um, on the sea power subcommittee um, and, you know, uh, a concerted effort, I think, by the nation over the last couple of years to try and reverse the trends and get back into shipbuilding world. But um, where do you see that going right now? Are we closing the gap? Are we uh, kind of lagging? And, and we mentioned labor. Are there other things that are holding us back from getting on the pace we really need to ensure we've got the strongest Navy in the world for uh, decades to come? So I do, I do think, um, you know, capacity at the end of the day is the biggest constraint in terms of, um, you know, really growing uh, the size of the fleet. We um, honestly, if you look at budgets, really going back the last six years, Congress has actually raised the top line on shipbuilding account. I mean, every single year, whether it was President Trump or President Biden. And um, so I, I think that's a really interesting sort of data point that there really is growing consensus about the fact that, um, you know, the post-Cold War holiday or whatever is definitely over. And, uh, um, you know, we heard uh, Secretary Austin talk about his budget this afternoon that it was, there were nine new ships and it actually the budget we passed in the house was 13 and uh, not, we're not sure it's going to hold that point there but um, you know another sort of I think interesting story is that um, as you recall you know sea uh, lift is one of the other sort of weak links in our um, you know just sea uh, services particularly when you talk about the Indo-Pacific where the tyranny of distance makes sea lift so important um, we actually have started a new sea lift build program using um, a somewhat, you know, different model, um, more private sector, a vessel contract manager. Um, and right now at the Philadelphia shipyard, which whose workforce was down to less than 20 uh, four years ago, is now up to 2,000 with this new uh, maritime training vessel. Um, and you, you see this, like, you know, sort of almost assembly line. They have um, four ships under construction at the same time. It's less 
less than a year per ship in terms of the the production and, and that cadence, that repetition shows that you can use, again, what, private sector um, acquisition and um, planning to, to really uh, reduce the price and increase the volume. So, um, you know, that that's the kind of thing that um, is a lot of fun because, frankly, that originated in our subcommittee because the Navy didn't really want to do that. And we said, no, we're, we're going to do that. So, um, uh, so I, again, I think there's some hopeful signs. Uh, the AUKUS agreement, which, uh, you know, was, uh, I think David uh, Ignatius described as the most significant national security um, development in decades. You know, we're going to see in March the rollout of the plan in terms of how uh, Australia is going to have a fleet of nine uh, nuclear-powered, uh, conventionally-armed uh, submarines. Uh, again, it's a tri Partite agreement with UK as well, and um, you know that's going to be again another sort of stress on the industrial base to try and help our great ally, you know, come up and deal with um, you know what they clearly identified as a critical component of deterrence. And you've been very active, uh, particularly with Australia over the years, and having a, a, a kind of industry group and promoting that as you know, buy America could be buy from America and allies. Um, and certainly, AUKUS is another pretty uh, large step there. Are are we doing enough with our allies, in your opinion, or is there more we could be doing with our allies, both to ensure they can grow some capacity as well as we can leverage their um, equipment from a supply chain perspective? How do you see that balanced against kind of this, you know, buy America in the literal sense sometimes uh, movement that sometimes we see out of uh, out of Congress? Sure. So, I mean, I do think that the buy America um, sort of movement uh really made sense a lot in terms of, you know, supply chains that we were relying on China uh, to, to build critical uh, defense platforms. And, you know, on that point, I think there really is even no dispute with our allies that, you know, that really is a, a change that was greatly overdue. Um, you know, I do think in the in the case of AUKUS, for example, um, you know, one of the key sort of threshold issues that we have to, to deal with is technology sharing and technology transfer um, because, you know, th- this is a program that's going to be on Australia's dime and they are not going to spend that dime if it's just going to be, you know, buying off the shelf from, you know, the UK or the US. I mean, they, they want to have their own sort of part in the industrial base. They're very clear-eyed about the fact that, you know, a country of less than 30 million people that has no nuclear industrial base to speak of today, you know, can't possibly, you know, do the, the really sort of heavy uh, lifting on this. But but there's no question that um, there's there's this program is big enough where there'll be plenty of room for them to participate. I mean, there, there clearly are other, you know, programs like F-35 where, um, you know, in the wake of Ukraine, you know, we've seen some almost like a, you know, stampede. Uh, Finland, Germany, you know, I think uh, Japan is buying more uh, F-35s. But again, one of the, I think, key features of that program was the joint sort of allied participation in terms of, you know, them, you know, being part of uh, both production and sustainment. And, um, and, and that's 
also, I think, one of the selling points why, you know, that program has really all of a sudden gotten very popular. You've talked about a lot of great ideas around workforce and talent. I'm curious, make it a little bit more of a personal question. Something we like to talk about on our show is mentorship and the importance of mentors. You also talked about internships and, and what that can enable. Did you have any special mentors in your life that you wanted to give a call out to? So, so again, the former Congressman Gadenson, you know, definitely, uh, you know, who was a very effective um, legislator when I worked for him at the General Assembly. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I actually was a member of the General Assembly, you know, you're walking in as a, you know, complete sort of newbie when you're there. And, um, you know, there was just some, um, you know, really great uh, examples of people who, um, you know, I served on their committees and sort of watched them, you know, handle their duties as chairs. And, um, and you know, we just had some just, you know, really incredibly um, clever you know, folks, because you do need to be, you know, really agile in the legislative process in terms of really finding those real key moments of overlap with people that you may not agree with on a lot of stuff. Um, and so um, uh, coming to Congress, uh, you know, my first chairman on the Armed Services Committee was Ike Skelton, who was just, you know, this... Uh, incredible, um, knowledgeable leader on the Armed Services Committee, um, you know, full of stories. He, he, you know, knew Harry Truman, you know, and I mean, those kind of things are just, you know, so exciting when you get to meet people, you know, who, you know, have those kinds of experiences. Uh, Jack Murtha, who was the sort of iconic defense appropriator from Pennsylvania, um, 30 plus years in the Marine Corps. Um, he's the guy who we brought up to Electric Boat my first four months in office um, and had sort of the breakthrough moment to uh, get higher funding for advanced procurement to get that, you know, the Virginia program was only kind of limping along at one sub a year. There was just in the, in the workforce there was again, just crashing. Um, and Jack's decision after that visit up to Groton, I still have the picture hanging in my office, um, you know, was, um, instrumental in terms of really just transforming what was really a declining shipyard whose you know future was very much in doubt into now this incredible sort of growth center. Um, the day he brought the bill out was a Saturday, which was pretty unusual for the House to be in session uh, on a Saturday. And I sat right behind him during the whole debate because, you know, it was... Uh, you know, just a moment that, you know, meant so much to the district that was there. So, um, uh, you know, again, just a lot of uh, great people, you know, that um, I've worked with and, um, uh, you know, that that I think, again, is one of the things that your listeners, when they think about sort of public service, it, it really is a learning experience and, and a very rewarding one. You know, it's interesting. You see a lot of things in Congress and uh, the partisanship and, you know, the kind of um, maybe extremist elements on both sides sometimes. But I was always struck with you and uh, Representative Whitman and the two of you were very well aligned on what's best for the nation and the Navy, not, you know, what's best for one party or the other on the Sea Power Committee and and also just personally uh, working very closely across um, um, legislative and the executive branch. I think there's this perception it's always got to be a, a contest or a confrontational, you know, and again, you're a great example of how to actually 
work uh, across both branches. What's advice you give to others who are in any of the branches of how to best work across and build trust and and get to a, a positive relationship, not a confrontational relationship, even on key issues? So, um you know, most people who run for office, I mean, do it because they're very, you know, motivated and, you know, have strong beliefs. And, and that's, you know, across the board. And that's a good thing, you know, because you want people who are serving for the right reason because they, they really um, are out for the public interest. But, you know, you, you have to also realize that, you know, a, a legislative body is not a debate club. You know, that you're there actually to act and to, to do things and to get results. And, you know, by acting and doing things, it doesn't mean going on cable shows and sort of, you know, um, just trying to be as outrageous as possible. It, it really is about, uh, again, trying to find that sort of um, key tactical um, pathway that that involves, you know, really trying to find people on the other side that, you know, can really mean the difference between um, failure and, and success. I mean, there are certainly a lot of examples of bills that pass and get to the president's desk, you know, straight party line votes. But in fact, the majority of the ones that do get to a president's desk, if you really, you know, break it down and analyze them, they really, they, they aren't that. They, they don't predominate as party line votes. They, they really are, you know, a mixture of people on both sides. So it's, you know, it's not like you're being naive or um, dishonest with yourself by, by working with the other side. It actually is a successful strategy for um, you know, getting things for your district and, and really, you know, the, the most important like thing you can look back on as a, as a legislator when you're done is really, you know, those, those signed bills, you know, and those, those, um, you know, those programs that, you know, have your name in it. And, and, and it doesn't have to be just your name. Uh, Sam Rayburn, who was one of the most successful members of Congress in American history said, you know, that the people who really learn to succeed are the ones who share credit, not take credit. And I think that, um, you know, is, uh, is something that I, 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 you know, believe so deeply. And it's not based on sort of just my own sort of view of the world. It's really based on real life experience. I mean, really, honestly, that is how you get things. That's how you succeed. Well, on that collaborative and action oriented note, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Your message to me was really clear is at the end of the day, the defense industrial base depends on the people and the workforce. So thank you for all you're doing um, to to strengthen that and support that. Great. Well, thank you, Lauren, and good luck with your podcast. I mean, uh, this is uh, you guys are very focused on uh, really, I think, you talk to people out in the economy right now. I mean, workforce is number one, two, and three in terms of uh, the thing that keeps people up at night. So thank you for doing this. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.